Welcome to the Dubai College Wellbeing Podcast. We are your hosts, the school counselors here at DC. This podcast is all about mental health. I am Sandra Gorman. I am Michelle Estacanchi. And I am Alison Kate. Today, we are delighted to introduce our speaker, Ross Edison. Ross is the Managing Director of Reverse Psychology in Dubai. He is a child and adolescent CBT therapist, specializing in the treatment of children, adolescents, and families. Welcome, Ross. It is so lovely to have you. Thank you. (laughs) Is there anything else that you would like to add about yourself before we start? I don't think so. I think um, what I would say is that a lot of the families that I meet with, uh, it's for conditions like mood disorders, depressive disorders, anxiety conditions. I see lots of ADHD and ASD, which Mm -hmm. CBT lends itself really well to Mm -hmm. because of the structured and goal-focused approach. Um, But yeah, the training in the UK is very much about uh, being able to triage and see kind of every family that comes into the NHS. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the training is kind of tailored towards being able to support any family with a mental health concern. Okay, lovely. Thank you. Yeah, it's lovely to have you here, Ross. And um, it'd be interesting to hear what you have to say um, and what you see in your clinic. Um, Because we hear a lot lately from parents and social media that in the last 10 years, children are more depressed more than ever before. And what are are your feelings about that? What do you see? I think think we have to say it's true that the research is indicating and showing that children, anyone under the age of 18 in particular, seems to be struggling a lot more with depression and mood disorders than prior to 10 years ago. It's not just children and young people. We're seeing it across the board, still in adults and less so in um, in adults 50 and 60 above. There tends to be less prevalence rates for, for depression and mental health concerns. Mm-hmm. But uh, certainly amongst young people, yes, there's been some quite sharp um, increases within the last 10 years, probably more so than the last eight years as well. Mm-hmm. Mental health concerns generally arising across the board. Uh, the UK and the US are very much um, kind of front runners on reporting statistics for these. Um, the UK, for example, research over the last 18 months has indicated that 7% of all UK children aged under 18 have attempted to or have attempted suicide, which is a really high number. That's almost one in 10 young people have tried to kill themselves because of something related to a mood disorder. Uh, one in four have reported that they self-harmed in the last 12 months, under 18-year-olds. We know that about every 100 minutes, a teen takes their life. Um, in the UK, 41% of all hospital admissions for self-harm were within the teenage age group. Uh, for young males in particular, the suicide rate in the UK is at its highest on record. It's never been so high before. Mm. Um, and we also know that 70% of under 18 year olds presenting with mental health concerns never go out to seek support. They never ask, it's never picked up. Um, that's a lot of young people going into adulthood that haven't had any treatment, which probably also coincides with us knowing that about 50% of all mental health concerns start before the age of 14, and about 75% start before the age of 24. Mm. You know, so this is why 
we, we typically see that probably up until about six to 10 years ago, the highest prevalency rates in the biggest at-risk at age group was the 18 to 25 year olds, particularly for depression and self-harm. But now actually it's changed, mm. it's lower now. So whilst the numbers for reporting of mental health concerns and depression is still most prevalent amongst the 18 to 25 year olds, what we're seeing is that there's a sharp incline in um, referral and prevalence rates for the 10 to 14 year olds. So actually, whilst the 10 to 14 year olds still are reporting it less than the 18 to 25s, the acceleration on how they're reporting it and how much they're reporting it has overtaken the other thresholds for age categories. Mm. So the 10 to 14 year olds are the most at risk mm. for suicide. The US published a lot of statistics about this um, over the past three or four years. And up until about 2010, reporting rates were pretty stable. You know, increase, but generally stable, like a very stable incline. Um, but then what we see from about 2010, 2011, is that there's just a sharp increase and it's continuing on an upward trend. I believe amongst 10 to 14 year olds, suicide rates are up something like 170% compared to pre-2010 and continue to incline. So the, the, the big worries for young people now are very, very present. Um, one, in young, one in six young people aged 11 to 16 have a mental health concern. One in five of 17 to 22 year olds. We know that depression is a, a leading cause of death worldwide. And between the ages of 15 and 24, it's, um, it's the most common cause of death for that age range. Um, young males who self-harm have a higher risk of suicide compared to young females. And I think that probably is partly to do with males are less likely to reach out for help than females, probably a bit more likely to keep the concerns to themselves. The stigma, the, the worry about what others would think of them are, are perhaps a bit higher than females. So when they internalise all of these mental health concerns and don't share them, when they do self-harm, they're just, we've seen as a, a higher rate of them going on to, to end their lives at some point. Mm. Um, so we've spoken a lot in the past two and a half years or so about the COVID pandemic. But actually, what we just see, and not since even COVID, but it's been exasperated by COVID, is that mental health is a, is a complete pandemic. Mm. That's, it's not new that it's a pandemic, but in the last 10 years, it really has accelerated. Mm. And... Um, it's really worrying for parents, you know, parents, young people themselves. Um, rates of, of reporting are much higher than ever. And COVID has really, really not helped the situation for young people. Mm. It's made life much more difficult. Goodness. Ross, those are very alarming statistics. And <clears throat> as you said, as, you know, as a, as a mom myself, um, it creates a lot of anxiety just hearing what our young people are going through. Why would why would you feel this there's been such an increase, do you think? I think if looking over the last ten years or so, so we, we kind of know that Gen Z were probably the first age category that were brought into this new world of technology. You know, the social media mm -hmm. development, smartphones, all of these types of kind of devices. Um, have really kind of skyrocketed, you know, they're booming industries for the developers. They're making billions each year on them because sales continue to increase. The, you know, I don't want to focus just on social media and devices, but it is important because a lot of the developers know exactly what wants, 
or what they need to do to keep a child online. The games that they develop are intended to produce more dopamine Mm -hmm. for the young person. You know, that instant kind of thrill that they get from it. And something I speak to a lot of parents about is dopamine deficit. Mm -hmm. You know, when you repetitively receive immediate dopamine uh, or immediate dopamine being released from the brain from pleasure, when you remove that pleasure quite sharply, there's a complete deficit. Mm So the brain is no longer receiving those feel-good chemicals, which you know, really is leading children to experience lower mood, more anger, more frustration. So I think social media is certainly a concern, and it has been for a while now. But I think probably more so life is a bit more difficult to manage now. It's a bit more difficult to navigate as a young person. You know, when I look back to, to my teenage years, it was really far simpler. You know, there were less devices. I was outside more. And my life outside of school was really family and friends. That's pretty much what occupied my time. Now there's so much more for young people to navigate, you know, not just their social lives and, you know, how that is arranged and all the additional extra opportunities there are to socialise, you know, all of the skate parks, all of the, the activities that they can do. It's just far more than there were before. Life was simpler. And I think young people, you know, the brains are really... They haven't evolved quickly enough to be able to tolerate the amount of information we take in each day now. Um, And I think it's confusing. I think it's just too much. It's overwhelming. I think, you know, not to say too much about the school systems because, you know, I think we'd probably agree that um, grade performances are better than they used to be 20 years ago. More and more people are achieving, you know, more A to C grades each year for GCSEs, A-levels, IB, these types of things. Um, But I think there's more pressure on schooling as well. There's more people out there who have degrees, who are entrepreneurs, and I think young people have a higher benchmark that they need to reach now. Mm -hmm. Cost of living is much more expensive. You know, I think they they kind of realise or expect they're going to have to earn quite a lot more money than their parents did when they were kind of coming into the job market. And it's really challenging. It's really difficult for them. I think, um, you know, what some of the research shows is that young people in particular are showing far decreased energy levels and social activities. So whilst some go out more, more and more young people are spending their time at home, being isolated and withdrawn. They're gaming, not only gaming, but a lot of it is gaming, talking to their friends on Discord, having kind of a social life that's interactive. And I have to say, with the emergence of kind of VR, the virtual reality headsets, I think we're going to see a further decline in social life, kind of face-to-face activity over the next 10 years. More and more people are going to be immersed in this online world, which is going to bring about more and more mental health concerns. It's just a projection. You know, it's maybe things will change. The VR world might collapse. You know, young people might say, actually, I don't want this. Um, But I think I'm seeing more and more young people who are engaging in that VR world, and they really enjoy it. They get a lot from it. Um, So I think there's lots of of challenges young people have right now. Cyberbullying is a big one. Over 60% of young people under the age of 14 report being bullied at least or on two occasions or more every two months online. That's a high number, 60%. Um, So I think with life becoming more challenging and more and more people experiencing a range of mental health concerns, we know that when you have 
one mental health concern, you are perhaps a little bit more likely to develop another. And if you have you know, comorbid symptoms or conditions, it's going to make life even more difficult to manage. So it's a, I think there's a combination. Social media, social interactions, less physical exercise, less activity, schooling system perhaps being a bit more complicated than it used to be, more variety in choice in subjects, more project work perhaps. When I was at school, I pretty much sat exams at the end of the year and that was it. Some bits of coursework were due, but nowadays, you know, kids, they're kind of being tested either in class, pop quizzes and things every week or every couple of weeks. There's end of term assessments are always ongoing, always project work. It's not a complaint about the school system, but it's just much more complicated than it used to be. When I did my A-levels, it was one exam at the end of year 12, one exam at the end of year 13 for each subject. I think a piece of coursework for two of my subjects, that was it. Even my art A-level was, um, it was just painting. I was, I was told I could paint any kind of theme I wanted, like a movement, like impressionism or abstract, and I just had to paint, I think, 10 paintings and do a little bit of writing. But now, when I speak to other young people doing their art A-level, they're having to do various different types of projects, they're having to be much more creative, the examiners are looking for like creativity and um, innovation. You know, it's not so much about what they've painted anymore, it's about the theme and the idea behind it. It's much harder, it really is. So there's so many factors that are affecting it and young people are really caught up in how quickly the world is changing and struggling to adapt. I think that's really interesting and probably what we see here at school as well, when parents ask, you know, what, you know, what are the factors, I would say, yeah. all of those factors. Um, you know, I think for parents, it's often hard to know what is just teenage behavior, like going in your room, wanting to be um, a bit more independent, not wanting to talk. Um, often we'll hear, you know, parents of teenagers who have really no mental health concerns say they just kind of grunt at you and eat and go yeah. in their room. And then you say, well, that's teenagers. But then there's the other side of that where you start to worry. And is that normal behavior? Or when should I know um, when my child is, is depressed? And, and you know, those teenagers, I think, for parents are quite hard to navigate. And it's hard to know what's normal and what's not. So what would depression look like in a child and a teenager? What can parents look out for? Yeah, I think you're entirely right, Michelle. You know, no one can be happy or should be expected to be happy all day, every day. Mm-hmm. Young people, adults, everyone on the planet can have a down day, mm-hmm. down few days. They might even have much longer, a much longer period of being down, you know, for something like grief, perhaps, where they don't actually have depression, but it's just very low and they will bounce back. Um, so in terms of um, thinking what depression would look like, you know, we've got to think about how we use that term depression because it's very much a clinical term that comes uh, or comes as part of a diagnosis. But a lot of young people and adults use it, I would say, a bit flippantly. You know, they might come in to school one day and just say, oh, I'm so depressed. I hear this all the time. And so a lot of my work is about normalising you know, daily life, mental health, mood, how it can look on a daily basis. Because um, I'm sure we've all experienced, you know, going into work one day feeling, ah, oh, I just, I don't feel like it today. Or I feel, I feel like I'm depressed or something. Like, it's just a word that 
is kind of floating out around there a lot. Um, but we've got to remember it's a clinical term and it's really important to experience down days or low mood days. But in a, in a child, depression um, could look like some of the following kind of criteria. But it's also important to remember that uh, when looking at these criteria or these factors, we're looking at changes in presentation. So a young person who is, let's say, very shy and has been for a number of years may typically be a bit more isolating. They may isolate themselves a bit more. They may do less social activity and gravitate a bit more to being online. But that in itself, even though being withdrawn or isolating behavior would be a criteria of a depressive trait, you've got also got to look at the other factors around it. You know, if this child is a bit of a, an introvert, okay, well, they're probably more predisposed or likely to be a bit more isolated. Um, so always thinking about, okay, well, are these, are these new symptoms or new changes in their presentation? So withdrawal and isolation from the world, family, friends, perhaps school and school refusal. Uh, if school have pointed out or any parents or the individual has noted any kind of decreased or change in concentration um, would be a quite a significant trait of potential trait of low mood developing. Increased irritability, uh, the young person or parents noting any kind of disturbed sleep patterns or changes in sleep routine. Appetite loss or appetite increase could be a trait of, of low mood. Loss of interest in things that the young person used to once enjoy. Um, apathy, fatigue, hopelessness, being a bit more crying, uh, a bit more tearful or crying a bit more of the time. Negative talk or negative um, kind of thoughts about themselves, the future, the environment around them, whether it's home, school or friendships, um, and then self-harm and, and suicidal thoughts. All of those traits would be, let's say, indicators of low mood. But it's only when a certain number of them have been met that you'd be thinking, okay, is this something I need to explore more? So typically, um, I would probably be, and this isn't kind of a rule in stone, but I'd probably be thinking, okay, up to three of those traits at any one time, could easily be explained by something that's very much unrelated to depression or depression emerging. Uh, perhaps even up to four, but you know where there are four traits or more, I think it would certainly be worth looking into a bit more because you know enough of those traits together presenting at the same time, even if there isn't or aren't kind of a diagnosis of depression there now. They're emerging traits, mm -hmm. flags to look for. So very important to perhaps consider that that a combination of those traits together could be indicating a, a you know, depressive episode perhaps about to start. But I often get asked by parents, you know, how, so that's some of the traits, but as a parent, you know, I'm not looking out for increased irritability or decreased concentration so much. So uh, parents ask me, you know, how would that actually play out in day-to-day -day life? So things like not going out so much, grades dropping, child maybe looking or sounding a bit more tired, sleeping late, difficulty getting out of bed in the mornings, and I probably should say for teenagers, increased difficulty in getting out of bed in the morning. Um, because it's, you know, with all hormonal changes, uh, it's quite a common symptom that, you know, young people will experience that kind of sticky bed syndrome, difficulty getting up. <laughs> Um, reduced eating habits, so maybe skipping meals, napping through meals, skipping breakfast, uh, eating less or just generally saying I'm not very hungry. Or perhaps it could be the opposite, perhaps secret eating. 
Um, and I say secret in terms of the young person not wanting others to know how much they're eating, especially if they are aware or thinking that they're eating a bit more than, than perhaps they would do normally. Um, that they, young people not doing the activities they used to enjoy, things like sports and exercise, even things like playing their guitar or, or their drums, if that's something they used to do, seeing friends, drawing, cooking, um, anything really that they used to get pleasure from that you've just noticed is just dropped off. They're just not doing it as much anymore. Uh, they may seem more angry and frustrated and stressed in day-to-day -day life than they, they did before. Talking in a way that's a bit doom and gloomy, a bit more negative. Um, there's just less kind of oomph in their tone and in their voice. They can seem a bit more monotone. Spending a lot more time in their bedroom, probably or perhaps at a device. Maybe even choosing to lock their bedroom door a bit more. You know, that extra effort of locking the door just keeps the world at bay. Keeps everyone uh, at bay from being able to come in. Um, and with the self-harm, perhaps some things that a parent might want to look out for is a young person covering up their body a bit more, perhaps trying to get out of PE or any games activities or sports activities at school or outside, um, and generally not wanting to do activities that show their skin. That would be for a, a proportion of the young people that self-harm, but some, on the other hand, are quite open and willing for the... Um, the marks to be shown and will do it in places in their body where it would be known and you know sometimes I get I get parents asking me kind of what's going on is this just attention seeking I really try to avoid those two words um, it's really quite negative and dangerous for the young person to think that their parents are assuming it's just for attention I tend to rephrase it to parents as cry for help if it's in a place in the body that's very noticeable the young person perhaps does want people to see but the, the attention-seeking notion, it just 99% of it don't buy into it. It's very much that I need help. I'm not being noticed. Someone, someone notice me and help me. So there's some of the, the ways in which parents might, might see depression or, or kind of emerging love presenting in their child. Thank you, Ross. I think, um, you know, we tend to work with children um, in adolescents who are quite aware within themselves that things aren't going well. They're perhaps aware that they are withdrawing socially. They know that they are feeling low most of the time, um, etc. What do you think um, children and adolescents can do when they're noticing that within themselves? There, there is a lot they can do, Alison. I think, um, you know, us all being professionals ourselves, the biggest thing we can advocate for is to reach out, try and get help. Mm -hmm. um, you know, for a young person, certainly in the UAE, Many schools, if not all, have access to counselling or therapeutic support at school. So a school counsellor would be, if the young person is able to, a really good outlet to go to. What I typically see is that young people, they won't use their parents as the first point of call for a variety of different reasons. And the vast majority of the time, it's, it's nothing to do with the parents. Mm -hmm. The child doesn't want to worry their parents or feel like they're burdening them. So parents often are a little bit less aware of any mental health concerns or specifically what concerns the young person is going through. Um, but a young person would be perhaps more likely to reach out to a school counsellor, which I think is a great first step. They can speak to a friend. Bearing in mind, though, a friend may not always know what to say. And sometimes I have young people say to me, you know, I told a friend or I told a couple of friends and they just kind of went quiet or didn't say anything. Mm -hmm. It made me 
you know, the elder teens might say something like it, it made me feel a bit invalidated, that they just don't care. But also, some young people who haven't experienced mental health really don't know how to respond to some things that they would hear. And it could be really kind of alien to them to have someone speak to them and say that, you know, I'm self-harming. They're probably a bit scared, fearful, don't know what to do, don't know what to say. So um, if a young person can, school network is, is really good. A friend, a teacher, you know, most young people will have at least one teacher that they really like and really favour. Um, the teacher will always be supportive. Um, try to, to help the young person and link them up with any support that they can, particularly within the school. Once the, the child has told someone, help should be far more in reach, but it's always the hardest step reaching out for a young person. Uh, I think some of the challenges young people experience in school is that when they kind of go into the counsellor's office, sometimes they have to wait outside and they give the door a knock and then they see that other people are walking around seeing that they're waiting outside to go into the counsellor. So it is tricky, which I think is why a lot of young people, like I mentioned earlier, 70% of under 18 year olds don't reach out for support. There's still a big stigma around it. But I think what we all try to do as a collective is encourage young people to speak out and to see that, you know, having a, a mental health concern or emerging concerns is something that many of us are going to go through in life. And talking about it is healthy. Mm-hmm. Talking about it is a good thing. I would say that trying to, for young people to try to avoid self-diagnosing online, it really is a minefield and really not the best way of doing it because as we would know as clinicians, there are so many differential diagnoses And a lot of the time, a young person might put three or four traits into Google. Mm -hmm. And honestly, you could put three or four mental health traits come come into Google and it'll come back and you've got cancer. (laughs) You know, it's it's really worrying. So I do, unless a young person has been receiving some support and the counsellor or, you know, a um, counsellor or a clinician within a private setting has given a diagnosis, better that a young person doesn't do too much of of that research themselves. Um, But what I would say is, yeah, school is a really good network for young people and a really good first point of of support. Uh, And many schools like DC are set up to be able to provide that that really effective and high quality support in-house. So I would certainly recommend that any of the children in DC, particularly, you know, as we're talking about about your school today, reach out to to one of you. Most important for them. Yeah, it is, and it's it is tricky for students sometimes to reach out, and um, I think that's why um, podcast and um, you know any other way of reaching out to to our students and to our parents so that we can break down the stigma of mental health and, yeah. and coming to see us. It's really just a chat and a yeah. safe space where. Um, you don't have to worry about judgment. Mm-hmm. And um, so I think that's really important. Um, if a parent notices, like, you know, look, or they're worried about their their child uh, with low mood or depression, and, you know, maybe the child is speaking to them about it, and maybe they aren't, what are some things that the parent can do to support their child? What, what would you tell a parent to do? Yeah, I think there's certainly some do's and don'ts. Um, but not a a really, really hard rule on this. Every family is different. Every young person is different. They respond to to different approaches. But certainly some things a parent, or that I advise parents to do is not to force their child to talk. 
don't sit them down and say, you're going to tell me absolutely everything that's going on. I want to know everything because it's just going to make the child kind of take a step back and find it more difficult to be able to open up. Uh, do listen more. Um, and what I often say to parents is try to do less problem solving and do more curiosity and being inquisitive. Because, you know, as parents, uh, we never want to see our child experiencing a difficulty. So, of course, our natural instinct would be, I don't want my child to feel this way for one second longer than they have to. I'm going to try and fix things as quick as I can. But actually, the child may not be ready or not wanting to be kind of fixed or have the problem solving right away. They may need to offload and vent first. So uh, I encourage parents, just be curious, ask questions. Rather than coming to conclusions and providing solutions, just listen. And, uh, you know, a lot of parents say to me, but it's really quite hard because I feel like the conversation comes to an end and then they need to ask something else. Tolerate that uncomfortableness that you feel in that silence and just wait. And I'm quite sure the child will say something else. They'll continue speaking. If not right then, they will at some point. Because what they really want to, or what they really need is to be listened to. And parents just opening up their ears without judgment, without, um, you know, doing too much of the, the problem solving is really, really effective and supportive for a young person. Mm-hmm. What I typically say to parents is try to follow the kind of Socratic questioning method. You know, just inquisitive. Um, ask open-ended questions, uh, try not to be judgmental, and just wait to see the responses, and just validate. Mm-hmm. Oh, that sounds really difficult. That sounds really hard for you. I, I never knew this. Um, constant validation would just help that child to feel like they can open up and keep on going. If you are concerned that your child is unhappy or has depressive traits or has been diagnosed with depression, do as a parent have regular check-ins with them, you know, when they get home from school, but gently and not exhaustive, unless it's been, you know, a very prescriptive approach from a psychiatrist who said, you know, the door must be kept open, they can't be locked, or, you know, they can't be in their room for longer than an hour on their own at the time, things like that. But if not, just be gentle, do little check-ins, go and knock on the door, encourage them to come out of their bedroom, come for dinner, go and do something with the family, uh, encouraging um, activity, Um, you know, just getting out of the house. Uh, Journaling and and thought diarying can be a really healthy way for a young person to process things in their mind. But again, a lot of young people don't like the idea of writing a journal or a thought diary. So it doesn't matter what you call it or what they call it. As long as they are writing something, it can be a really effective tool for them to kind of offload and vent the stresses that are going through their mind. Uh, As a parent, understand that the child is going through a tough time and their everyday tasks may be difficult for them. Even getting out of bed, doing homework, coming down for dinner. You know, it's it's not a lazy gene. It's just that low mood really does zap our, or can zap our energy levels and make life, those everyday things, really quite difficult. Um, I think try and pick your battles with your child if you're worried about their mental health concerns. Things you can let go, just let them go. You know, it's just not worth the conflict for you or the family or the young person. Um, so just, you know, try not to be as nitpicky as you may be otherwise. Um, we know without sounding critical at all. Um, give the child something to look forward to. Speak about things to look forward to, short term and long term. Uh, family holiday, something you're going to do at the weekend. 
even if the child doesn't seem too excited about doing it, by sharing that activity with them, you give them something, some kind of hope of something to look forward to in, in the near term. If as a family there are more stresses going on at home, other siblings have mental health concerns or perhaps parents do, um, just try to reduce conflict as much as you can. Some young people really tell me that they like to just go out for a drive with a parent or with a sibling. Just gets them out of the house. Sometimes they go for a Starbucks or a coffee or something. And also it gives them some one-to-one time, typically with that sibling or parent. So just getting out any way that they can. Um, there are lots a parent can do. But I think, you know, something that maybe we don't do is kind of ask for help ourselves as a parent. Asking or telling a friend or a family member can be quite hard because we don't really, you know, we worry a little bit about judgment from others, perhaps. Don't really want others to know our business. So we tend to keep some of those family-related concerns to ourselves, which build up our stress, pressure, perhaps make us more likely to develop, to develop a mental health concern. So I would say as a parent, talk to someone yourself. It doesn't have to be a professional. Talk to a friend, a really good friend, or another family member, or someone. Um, or reach out to the school for support. You know, for parents, you're probably the most effective asset they would have Mm -hmm. in terms of, okay, maybe you can't provide the support for them, but you can signpost, you know, who would be uh, an effective person for them to meet with. So I think coming to you is a a really good option for them too. Mm -hmm. That's a really lovely um, ideas for and very practical things that parents can do. Um, And as you say, I think from our perspective, um, when a parent is... um, is reaching out for that support and that help um, it makes our job just so much easier because it means that we're a team working mm-hmm. with the child um, and sometimes the you know like you're saying it's hard for a parent to reach out you know um, for all of us that vulnerability is not a nice feeling so you've given us some really wonderful strategies Ross are there any is there anything else that um, parents and children can do to maintain positive mental health going forward there are yeah i think um lots of preventative um kind of tools and resources and strategies that i suppose promote healthy well-being healthy mental well-being they spending time with your children uh one-to-one time is really important mm-hmm. um a lot of the time when i mention that to parents or they even mentioned to me how much one-to-one time should i be doing it doesn't have to be every day and it doesn't have to be hours mm-hmm. <clears throat> the most important thing is having some one-to-one time each week and making sure that the one-to-one time is quality mm-hmm. deviceless is really important and ideally a child-led activity so um You know, a lot of the time, maybe a child, if you say to them, oh, what should we do? They might not be able to give you an answer right away. But um, what we've seen from the research is that a child feels more engaged if it's an activity or a one-to-one time that's led by them. And also it gives the parents a a way into their worlds, you know, of just exploring it a bit more with them. So I think um, certainly one-to-one time is a a big preventative method. Um, And that, as well as the one-to-one time, having family dinners, really important family activities like board games and quiz nights um, just keeps everyone together keeps everyone communicating develops the relationships uh, spend time together outside of the family home as well you know we all have such busy lives it can really be quite difficult at times in the year to to go out and coordinate everyone in the family you know all being together Um, but those those family activities outside are really important they don't have to be expensive 
could just be a walk down the beach. That's all it needs to be. It's just something that you do together as a family. Trying to model positive mental health. So things like optimism and hope. You know, talking about it. Um, talking about the future in a at least a neutral way, if not optimistic. Um, talking about hopes and goals. You know, what there is to look forward to. Um, it's just talking in that kind of fashion really helps to model to the young person. You know, whilst there can be things in life that are really difficult and stressful, there's always things that provide optimism and something to look forward to. Um, arts and crafts, I'm a big fan of. So that doesn't have to be sewing and knitting and that type of thing, but painting, drawing, music, all of these types of things are a really, really great way for a young, a young person to kind of explore their identity um, and to learn new things and to learn how to be emotionally expressive in different mediums that aren't just talking. So, so they're really things that I push with, with parents and young people. Play dates, really important. Uh, sleepovers, when you as a parent feel comfortable and confident enough to let your child down do a sleepover. Um, the five essentials that I always talk about with young people are um, exercise uh, for a variety of reasons, but if nothing else, just the dopamine release that we get from it and the adrenaline that leaves our body from doing it. So just the stress reduction aspect. Um, having healthy sleep and a healthy sleep routine. You know, depending on the age, it does vary a little bit how much how much time is um, kind of recommended to sleep. But by routine, it's even more important that you go to sleep at roughly the same time each night and that there's not, I suppose, more really than 30 or 40 minutes in between the difference of, of sleep time each night really helps your brain to regulate and to orientate itself to uh, a habit and a routine. Diet, so that's not about you know, being on a diet, it's very much about um, maintaining healthy nutrition, good balance, uh, getting sunlight. So five to 10 minutes a day is enough in the UAE. Um, even a small part of the skin to give us our daily vitamin D allowance. Five to 10 minutes is plenty. Even if it's, you know, from your knee to your ankle. Uh, but trying to get that, and ideally outside of peaks, peak time in the day between 10 and 4 p.m. would be ideal. Um, and drinking plenty of water. So um, actually, I, I read that Alain recommend that for an adult, we should be drinking three and a half litres a day. Uh, and for a young person between 10 to 16, they should be having at least two to two and a half litres. Um, it's because we spend lots of our time in the AC, you know, especially eight months of the year, uh, and it dehydrates us. So plenty of water as well. Uh, really helps the brain to function better and all of the, the organs in our body. Uh, I mentioned earlier having things to look forward to, even weekly, monthly, yearly, things like that are, are really healthy in, in keeping a young person uh, kind of focused on the future. Celebrate the positives and successes, lots of healthy praise where it's appropriate, and fundamentally uh, provide unconditional love. I think in the media, we're going to see a lot more about this in the next year or two. There's a big drive in many countries about uh, supporting parents to, to kind of push a bit more unconditional love. Not that we don't. And I think for the vast amount, if not all parents, the unconditional love is there. But, um, you know, as, as school therapists, you may have seen it yourself that some young people, you know, will say to us, I don't feel loved by anyone. And although it's just their perception, you know, or we would hope it's just their perception. I think um, we probably can do a bit more as parents in, 
you know, just making it a bit more obvious about the unconditional love doesn't mean you never argue, doesn't mean you don't ever shout at your child, doesn't mean you don't ever tell them off, but it does mean that once it's repaired or, um, you know, after that situation, there is some kind of conversation or behaviour that lets your child know that no matter what they do on this planet, you'll still always love them. Mm-hmm. It's such a healthy, preventative kind of almost daily activity a parent can do just to make sure that their child is aware of that. It's one of the healthiest and one of the um, the most kind of common traits that a, a parent can, can kind of exercise or push onto a child to encourage their well-being. Mm. Everyone needs, to, everyone should feel loved. Mm. And as parents, let's just make sure we do it. Mm. But also important to remember Everyone makes mistakes. Parents, adults, children all make mistakes. Um, it's a normal part of living, part of growing up, uh, part of kind of parenting. Um, as parents, you can certainly increase your own knowledge of mental health. Psychoeducation is really important. Uh, stay engaged and involved in your child's life as much as you can. Uh, praise and remember that anything that your child is going through or whatever they're going through, there's always hope. Keep that in the back of your mind, always. Oh, Ross, thank you so much. Really informative, really practical. And um, it's always just a pleasure to have you into school to give us new information and also just sometimes a reminder of the information we already have. Thank Um, you. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure. Yeah, it is. It's really lovely. And for anybody listening who would like to connect to you or connect with you regarding their child's mental health, how can they do that? There's a couple of ways. So either they could contact the clinic directly, you know, assuming that their parents know. Um, So the parent can contact us directly at Reverse Psychology in Dubai. Uh, They can just go to our website. They'll they'll find all the contact information there. If it's a child from DC, they can certainly either do the same method of asking the parent to contact the clinic, or they could come to to any of the kind of school teaching team. The counselling team is probably their, their best bet, coming to one of yourselves. Um, but they would be able to, to certainly reach out either via the school or, or directly to the clinic. Wonderful. Thanks again. And um, we'll end on that note. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you to you, our listeners, for taking time out of your day to join in our discussion about mental health. If you want to hear more, please stay tuned for our next Dubai College Wellbeing podcast. And if no one has told you today, know that you are enough.